Welcome to Bridges Community Church, and whether you're joining us online or live in person, we would like to say thanks for joining us. And remember, it doesn't matter what you've been through in your life. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with or what you're going through right now. You are welcome here, and you are in the right place. We will begin our services in just a few moments, and as we prepare to enter into a time of worship, we would just like to say we would love to connect with you. If you're new with us, head to bridges.info and let us know that you're here, and we'll reach out this week and find out how we can be praying for you or how we can help get you connected to our community. Hey, coming up on July 31st, we will have our annual uh, beach worship service down at Seabright Beach near Santa Cruz. So I want you to make plans right now, uh, July 31st. Do not come to this building the morning of July 31st and instead travel to Seabright Beach near Santa Cruz. We will have music. Um, a short message, and the, maybe the most important thing is time together as a church family, hanging out all afternoon, as long as you can make it into your schedule on Seabright Beach in Santa Cruz. Bring a lunch, bring a towel, bring some sunscreen, and come to Seabright Beach July 31st instead of coming here on Sunday morning. And for anyone who has not yet been baptized, one of the amazing things that we often do when we are down at Seabright Beach um, is have baptisms in the ocean. So if you have been waiting to be baptized, if you are a believer in Christ and have not been baptized since you became a believer, now's the time. We want to baptize you in the ocean down at Seabright Beach on July 31st. So make sure you get that into your schedule and we will see you there.
Community Church. It is so wonderful to be together this morning. As we were preparing for this service, I was reminded of this awesome story in the Old Testament. It comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And basically what was happening was there was this big army coming to fight the people of God. And all of them were extremely scared. They were freaking out. That's pretty relatable, right? We relate to that. They were freaking out, and they came to God, and they said, God, we have nothing. What should we do? And in verse 15, God, the Spirit of God came upon this Levite man, and he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, 
For the battle is not yours, but God's. And later on, he says, you will not need to fight in this battle. So they didn't even have to fight. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. And then they didn't even send their army out. They actually decided to send out their worshipers to the front lines of this battle. So they were worshiping and praising God. Isn't that incredible? They sent out their worshipers and they said, great is the Lord and his, his steadfast love endures forever. And then all of the army that was fighting them started fighting amongst themselves. And scripture goes on to say that not one of them was left alive. And so God was moving back then on behalf of his people, and he is doing so today as well. So if you feel like you're fighting a battle, know that God is fighting that battle on your behalf. And let us continue to worship this morning. So why don't you stand with us and sing with that in your mind and in your heart that God fights our battles for us.
And together we say, Amen. Yeah, go ahead. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, and we'll dismiss our elementary school students to join Tate in the back. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. If you're visiting with us and you're wondering, do we always read such cheery psalms before the message? The answer is no. Uh, sometimes you get a psalm like that, and I'll explain it here in a moment. Before I do, though, the very first time that I can personally remember waking up to the harsh reality of injustice and of difficulty of getting along and that sometimes, no, we can't just all get along. The very first time that I remember experiencing that was when I was maybe three or four years old in what has come to be known through the ages as the Great Crayon Incident. <laughs> the Great Crayon Incident is a story that I told when I first started ministering here. Uh, and then since that's been over 10 years, I think I've passed the statute of limitations and I can tell this story again. Sometimes pastors do that. We rehash old stories. Here's one. The great crayon incident occurred when I was about three or four years old. And my sister, who's two years older than I, um, we were coloring, playing nicely, uh, until we weren't. We were, to my recollection, coloring some sort of Christmas scene. I remember a candle. I remember some sort of like holly in my mind's eye, like around the candle or something. The candle was supposed to be red, the holly around it or whatever, the greenery was supposed to be green. Everybody should know that. But my sister, for whatever reason, painted the candle green and the stuff around it red, so I did what anybody would do in that situation. I bit her on the shoulder. <laughs> That's right. I don't... Could I have handled that a little bit differently? Probably. Maybe. I remember my punishment besides just feeling great shame afterwards is I didn't get to watch my favorite show, which at the time was Popeye. 
Um, and I remember being disappointed. There may have been other consequences. I, it's all a blur. All I remember is that my sister is one of the kindest, most generous, most wonderful people uh, that I know, and she didn't deserve me treating her in that way, especially over something so trivial as like a coloring page. But for some reason, I just snapped in that moment, and I was like, this is now my avowed enemy, and she's going to pay. She's going to pay for what she did. Let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Vengeance is mine. I, I, I'm not sure as a three- or four-year-old if I actually said or thought those things, but I did learn firsthand a very valuable lesson, and that is that I have a limit. And all of us have a limit of some kind. All of us have a boiling point where you can push us just a little bit too far. All of us have moments, don't we, when someone wrongs us, when someone hurts us, when we're stunned, when we're outraged, when we're angry, we're filled with indignation, maybe even some thoughts of vengeance. And of course, now I'm not just talking about, again, a silly coloring page. I'm talking about actual pain, talking about actual unkindness, talking about actual hurt that other people cause us at times. It might be somebody that you just know you just can't get along with. This is a person who's against you outright and they don't pretend otherwise. Maybe it's somebody who persecutes you for what you believe. Maybe it's somebody who condemns you for something about you that they don't like for whatever reason. Sometimes it's from somebody who used to be your friend or somebody with whom you used to get along, but then they stab you in the back or they hurt you in some other way. I know what that feels like. All of you know what that feels like. Whenever we hear or encounter stories of actual injustice in the world, or we experience some actual wrong that's done to us by somebody else, it's normal to call out for justice to be done. It's normal to get defensive. It's normal to attack back. It's normal to rush to defend ourselves and our reputation. It's normal to demand punishment in exchange for our pain. It's normal to cry out to God and say, why? I don't know of a single person. I don't know of a single person who isn't outraged at injustice. Even if our standards of injustice may vary, we all want people who commit hurtful or horrible acts, especially to us, to be held accountable. And that's why we need a special category of Psalms that we're going to look at today. As we read the Psalms, we're going to discover, and we've been discovering in the series that we've been in this summer, in the Psalms, that we're not the first people in the world to feel this way. We're not the first person to grieve whenever we're slandered. We're not the first people to get angry when we're wrongfully accused. We're not the first to long to see that justice is done. And as much as we long for justice here and now, for our reputation to be restored, for charges to be laid, for the guilty to have to pay, for people in positions of power to have to answer for mistreatment of vulnerable people. But as Christians, we also long for something else, and that is for God to take note. We long for God to sort out what is wrong and right and for him to hold people accountable who appear to be getting away with whatever it is that they've done. So the category of Psalms that we're going to look at today is a complicated category. They're called the imprecatory Psalms. Everybody say imprecatory. It, it's not a word that you just normally would say, but these are Psalms or prayers that are given to God's people to satisfy our natural longings to see God deal 
with our enemies and with all evildoers. Some people have referred to these imprecatory psalms as the cursing psalms because that's what an imprecation is. An imprecation is a curse, so to speak, that invokes misfortune upon someone. So the imprecatory psalms are those in which the author imprecates, that is, calls down calamity or destruction or God's anger or judgment or just justice on his or her enemies or on God's enemies. Now, when we hear that kind of a description or when we hear the kind of language that Tyler just read for us in Psalm 137, especially that last verse, which we can hardly stomach about dashing infants against the rocks, what in the world? Our guard just comes up, doesn't it? It sounds like the imprecatory psalms. And by the way, these are not just scattered here and there in a few isolated places. They pervade the entire book of Psalms and are also in various places throughout the Old Testament, not just in the Psalms. And they also show up in the New Testament. It just sounds like these imprecatory Psalms are doing the exact opposite of what Jesus is and what Jesus told us to do. And so what people do is, with these imprecatory Psalms, is we just chalk them up to good old-fashioned concepts, and therefore that they have no relevance for us today. In preparing for this message, I came across a couple Christian denominations that voted at one time to remove all of these imprecatory psalms from their congregational Bible reading plan, and they chose to instead replace them with scriptures and hymns about the beauty of forgiveness. There's quite a few people maybe even some here today, who feel that these imprecatory psalms or prayers, if you can even legitimately call them prayers, are beneath the dignity of Christians, that they're not to be viewed as examples for us to follow today because they express what we feel are sinful desires for vengeance on our enemies. Now, these objections, I agree, are completely understandable. On the other hand, if we believe that all of Scripture is inspired by God, that all of Scripture is God-breathed, that all of Scripture is profitable, we need to be willing to wrestle with them a little bit before just writing them off. So here's one way to think about it. Whenever you have yearnings for vengeance, which is total, totally normal, or whenever you have yearnings for God to hold your enemies to account, which is totally normal, maybe the question shouldn't be, should I feel this way? But rather, maybe the question should be, if I feel this way, then what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do with the mistreatment and the anger that I'm experiencing? And there seem to be, I think here on the surface, at least I can come up with three things a person can do with their desire for vengeance. One, you can act it out, which people in this country do all the time. Two, you can try to stuff these feelings down and pretend that they don't exist and deny your feelings, although... The more you do that, then the more that they tend to come out somewhere else that you're not expecting. Or three, you can give these feelings over to someone who can actually do something about it and take care of it, which for Christians is God himself. And I would suggest that this third option seems to be what the imprecatory Psalms are doing. They're saying, I'm being eaten alive by my anger, God, and so I'd like to hand this off to you. We as parents are experienced with this. Third option, like when you have two kids who are playing, say two brothers, and one of them hurts the other one, and you're not really sure who started it, but one of the kids says, what are you going to do about this parent? He deserves to be punished for what he did to me. And in that scenario, the wise parent doesn't say, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. 
Get over it. It's not that big of a deal. You shouldn't feel that way about your brother. Nor does the wise parent listen to the child and say, whatever you want me to do to your brother, I'm going to do it. You name it. Rather, a wise parent says, why don't you leave that up to me? I've heard you. I know that you're hurt. And now you can just leave that here and I'll decide what needs to be done with it. It's that impulse that seems to be how the imprecatory psalms work. So let's get into the imprecatory psalms. I just picked one that's nine verses, Psalm 137. And in this imprecatory psalm, and in, I would argue all imprecatory psalms, you're going to see two things that always happen. One is the plight and two is a plea. A plight and a plea. And that's what we're going to look at today. The plight of the psalmist here in Psalm 137 to their plea. And then we'll finish it up by looking more broadly and generally at the question, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with these imprecatory psalms? First, their plight. The plight we read about in Psalm 137 is one of exile and of embarrassment. Exile and embarrassment. In verses 1 through 4, we see that first, exile. This psalm, like the other imprecatory psalms, has to be understood in its context. You, you know how much you hate it when somebody takes you out of context, something you said? Or when somebody interrupts you in the middle of a statement and they're like, why did you say that? And you're like, give me a moment to finish. We need to put this psalm in its proper context. And it's a poignant context. It's a poignant scene written in, in this case, in the immediate context of God's people in exile, in Babylon. Because what happened back then is something that happens all the time today. And we read about it in the news and it's something that will probably happen for a long time and that is that a bigger nation in this case babylon comes against a smaller nation in this case judah besieges his capital city which happened to fall in 586 bc soldiers come in they pillage they destroy they loot they burn they kill they force the survivors to flee from their homes or to be taken into exile and most of those exile people will never see their homeland again happens all the time it happened back then so psalm 137 seems to be an eyewitness account of all of this it's written by one of the surviving exiles it seems like so the writer starts off by depicting the people of israel by the waters of the river that sounds peaceful verse one everybody loves being by the river but it's clear it's not their river they're not by the jordan river anymore maybe they're by the tigris or the euphrates at this point but the point is they're now on foreign soil in unfamiliar territories they're not at home and there by the river they sat they weep they hang up their harps on the nearby trees why because this isn't a time for rejoicing we can understand that they're sitting and weeping as they remember their homeland they're reflecting on what once was and is now lost and part of what the people must have been thinking at this time is not only what the babylonians did but the fact that their own sins and rebellion against god had helped bring about this judgment as well it gets worse, and that's where the embarrassment comes in. Verse 2, we have exile and embarrassment. Verse 2, their captors are harassing them. They're taunting them sarcastically, and all that's doing is pouring salt on their wounds. They're saying, sing us the songs that you used to sing in the temple. Oh, wait a second, we destroyed that temple, didn't we? It's as if Babylon is saying, where is your God now? You're not going home anymore. And you're never going to get back there. So they're just taunting them. And so the exiles hang up their harps in the trees, whether literally or figuratively, we don't know. But they had no more songs left to sing. 
They're devastated. They're humiliated. They're embarrassed, and they're powerless to do anything about this. This is their plight. Second, look at their plea, verses 5 through 9. Their plea seems to be twofold. One, to remember, and two, to repay. Remember and repay. That's their plea. And this seems to be the exact same plea in most, if not all, of the other imprecatory psalms that you'll come across in the book of Psalms. To remember and to pay. First, remember. The word remember there is found three times in this particular psalm. Verse 1, verse 6, verse 7. This plea for remembrance seems to have two aspects to it. One aspect is to say, God, help us to not forget what it was like back home. Help us to not forget your faithfulness from the past. Help us to remember your character. Help us to always hold on to these things, even though now we're in this foreign land by this unknown river, this hostile, unfamiliar place. And then the writer goes further in verses 5 through 6 and says roughly the equivalent of, God, I would rather lose my arm or my leg than to forget Jerusalem, to forget the temple or to walk away from you. He's actually pronouncing a curse on himself if he ever forgets Jerusalem and his homeland, saying, if I do forget, may my right hand lose its skill to play the harp, may my tongue lose its ability to sing. That's the first aspect of remember. The second aspect is to say, God, would you remember? Remember us here. Remember what is happening here. Remember what our enemies have done to us. God, would you remember? Now, in the Hebrew language, that word remember doesn't mean recollection, as if we're trying to jog God's memory because he's just over, oh, I've forgotten. Rather, the word remember here, every time that God says, like, I will remember my covenant in the Old Testament, what it really means is not that he's forgotten about it, but he, what he's saying is, I'm going to act on it. I'm going to act on it. That word remember in this context means to act. So the psalmist is reminding himself, he's speaking to himself here in his spirit, that God is a righteous judge who not only has the authority to judge and the wisdom to judge perfectly, but that God also does not forget or allow evil to go unpunished. He's reminding himself, I am not the judge. God, you are. And so he says, God, you deal with them. He doesn't say, I'm going to make my enemies pay for what they did. He doesn't pray, Lord, you give me the strength and the opportunity to repay my enemies, and I'm going to carry out that vengeance. Instead, he says in verse 7, you remember, Lord. Help us to remember, and God, would you remember? Remember what my enemies did, and would you repay them? So who does the psalmist plead with God in Psalm 137? To repay, here it happens to be two groups, the Edomites and the Babylonians. The Edomites are the descendants of Isaac's son Esau, and over time, they regularly attacked Israel. And many wars are fought as a result, and according to various places in the Old Testament, the Edomites had sided with the Babylonians against Judah and took great pleasure in seeing the temple come down and the city fall. So the psalmist here is remembering their taunts of, tear it down, tear it down to its foundations. And the psalmist is pleading with God to remember and to repay them. And as far as Babylon goes, whew, no one had ever, up to that point in history, treated the Jewish people with such disdain, cruelty, destruction, slaughter. So the psalmist is recalling that they are Verse 8, doomed to destruction. Both the Edomites and the Babylonians are doomed to destruction. They'd caused all kinds of pain to Judah, and they both dealt ruthlessly with them. And so the psalmist is saying, God, would you remember, would you make them pay? Now, that repay part of this psalm in verse 9 is where it gets, again, especially painful. It's difficult to stomach. We're used to hearing something along the lines of, blessed or happy is the pure in heart. 
Blessed or happy are the merciful. Blessed or happy is the one who follows the Lord, but here it's blessed or happy is the one who repays our enemies. Blessed or happy is the one who takes their infants and dashes them on the rocks. We're, we're just not really sure, to be honest with you, what to make of this. And that's okay. I mean, if, for instance, is verse 9 some kind of a plea to prevent future retaliation from Babylon? Maybe. Is it some kind of judgment that God would bring on these folks that would match what Babylon had done to Jerusalem and to the people of Judah? We just can't be completely sure of what the psalmist is thinking at this moment. But it seems, if nothing else, it seems like an honest prayer coming from people whose own babies had just been dashed on the rocks by their oppressors. Now, they're not praying for their captors to suffer more than what they had suffered. They're not saying they're going to go out themselves and do that to the Babylonians. They are saying what they honestly feel, which is amazing. It's amazing that the Bible would include something like this and say, hey, your emotional reactions, bring them to God. It's amazing. When you're wronged, pour out that emotion to God in prayer. So we can understand their plight, I think. I think we can even understand their plea to a certain extent. Maybe not verse 9, but other parts of the plea. But the big question is, how do we make sense of an imprecatory psalm like this? I told you, this is not the only place in the psalms where there's hard language like this. Psalm 7, 6, arise, Lord, in your anger, rise up against the rage of my enemies. Psalm 55, 15, let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the realm of the dead. Psalm 58, how about this one? Break the teeth and the mouths of your enemies, God. May they be like a slug that oozes away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Hello. Psalm 59, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to the wicked traitors. Let me gloat over them, God, those who slander me. In your might, uproot them and bring them down. Consume them in your wrath, God. Consume them until they are no more. Psalm 109, which is a biggie. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. May his days be few. May his children be fatherless. May his wife be a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May a creditor seize all that he has. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. There's so many more examples of this kind of stuff in the psalm. So again, what are we supposed to do with this? How do we make sense of and apply something like this? Well, first, what some people try to do is they spiritualize these things. It is, I think, appropriate to pray these psalms against our spiritual enemies, like the devil and all of his minions. But as we saw in Psalm 137, these imprecatory psalms aren't talking primarily about spiritual forces of evil. Now, spiritual forces of evil are certainly behind and underneath all of this, but these prayers are about an actual group of people, a physical human enemy. Another approach that some people take is to try to accept these prayers as an honest expression of pain in that particular Old Testament context, moment of history, but then dismiss them as ever being appropriate for us today. Or another approach is to say that on the other side of the cross of Jesus and looking through the lens of the New Testament, these kinds of psalms are now for us nullified. After all, doesn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us? Yes. Aren't we told to just forgive as we've been forgiven? Yes, we're told that, no doubt. We do see more of this reality in the New Testament, 
We see God's judgment for sin on the cross. We see a day of judgment to come. But at the same time, I'm telling you, it would be a mistake to write these imprecatory psalms off as just Old Testament barbarism. After all, the Old Testament, just like the New Testament, encourages us to love our neighbor and love our enemies. That wasn't a brand new idea in the New Testament. It's in the Old as well as the New. It was God's intention all along. And let's not forget, as I mentioned earlier, we also find curses and imprecatory language in the New Testament, not just in the Old Testament. Two of the so-called worst of the imprecatory Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, are both quoted in the New Testament in Acts 1 and Romans 11. Also, we know that Jesus cursed the fig trees. We know that he cursed cities where he performed miracles, but people still didn't repent. He cursed the Pharisees seven times, saying, woe to you, which is a plight way of saying curse you pharisees or more literally damn you pharisees there's also the cursing of the faithless churches in the book of the revelation and there's also language about cursing and repayment to enemies in first corinthians galatians second timothy and in revelation 18 verse 20 the people of god are told to rejoice when babylon falls now in that context babylon's a metaphor for the worldly system of sin that we inhabit but surely it's also looking back at the exile that we just read about today in Psalm 137. The point of all this is it's not such an easy task to just sort of let's sweep these imprecatory psalms under the rug. So again, how are we to understand them? Here's a few thoughts. Here's a few points of application. One, it's important, I think, to understand that the imprecatory psalms are not expressions of mere personal or petty grievances. This is not a parking ticket. This is not a grumpy boss. This is not a father or mother who takes away your cell phone. This is not a spouse who doesn't help out around the house. This is not a nagging spouse. It's not a parent who won't let you go out with your friend. And it's not a president whose politics you don't like. In our day, I think we may have watered down that term enemy a bit to the point that we'll just often use enemy in general to describe someone who's rude to us or who treats us unkindly. Or sometimes our enemies are just people with whom we happen to disagree. You don't support fill-in-the-blank cause, you're my enemy. You voted for somebody else, you're my enemy. The Bible, though, doesn't ever justify a person calling down imprecations on other people for just merely personal reasons out of individual spite. Now, please understand, I don't mean to minimize justified anger and indignation when someone legitimately wrongs you. You're right to feel that way. All I'm suggesting is that we need to be really, 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 did I say really? Really careful not to try to read the imprecatory Psalms and make parallels to our lives today in the exact same way because, well, it's just not exactly the same. We're not in Babylonian exile. We're not on the run, living in a cave one step ahead of those who want to kill us. Most of us, thankfully, will never know what it's like to be enslaved to be forcibly removed from our homes, to see our enemy coming and burning down our place of worship, our city ruined, our wives and daughters ravaged, our children taken away. Now, there are people in the world who absolutely experience that, and they experience it every day. You and I may never completely feel any particular attachment to some of these desperate, bloody psalms. We can probably imagine the imprecatory psalms as being a bit more comprehensible and relatable, though, to those who've actually been enslaved. 
or to those who've had ancestors who were enslaved. These kind of things will make sense to those who have experienced racially motivated hate. To parents and family members of those we keep reading about, whenever another person walks into a shopping center or a school and just starts mowing people down with a gun. They're relatable to those who have witnessed actual genocide in their communities. I'm sure that these kinds of things are relatable to the Ukrainian people right now, right? To those who endure mistreatment from terrorists, to Christians who are in hiding around the world today because of oppressive governments, to people forced to work in labor camps, to those who have been wrongfully imprisoned, or to those who experience real oppression in some way every day. The imprecatory psalms may not always make quite as much sense to us, but we can imagine that they do bring a certain measure of comfort, hope, and resolve to those kinds of folks. The point I'm trying to make is that it's not wrong or unreasonable to be upset or angry anytime something bad threatens something good. It's not wrong or unreasonable to be angry in those moments when or, or whenever you personally experience or witness injustice. It's not wrong. But many of us here do, myself included, I think, need some perspective in those moments to remind ourselves of what Israel must have felt like about their enemies. And so this simple reminder about from the imprecatory psalms just helps us to better empathize i think with what the author must have been feeling and what others must be feeling and they can help us whenever we face anxiety and fear and uncertainty and anger and unjust treatment to remind ourselves that god sees and god cares second it's important to understand that this psalm psalm 137 is simply asking the lord for what he's already promised the whole system of Israelite religion, and in fact, the whole system of the world, is that there would be blessings for the righteous and curses for the wicked. That's how God ordered the world, is it not? So what Israel and the psalmist are pleading with God to do in these imprecatory psalms seems to be, God, would you just please make it so? Would you act according to your promises? The Old Testament is filled with promises that God would visit and repay evildoers, and so that's what they're asking for. Third, it's important to understand that the psalmist is not himself here plotting for revenge. This is key. This is a prayer for vindication. It's not the psalmist now gathering up the militia to go and say, let's make them pay. Let's go wipe out our enemies. Rather, the psalmist is asking God to work out all this judgment and salvation stuff. Also, it's important, I think, to understand we need all of the psalms not just the cheery, comforting ones that we sing songs to. The Psalms are meant to give voice to all of our deepest feelings and emotions. They put words to our thirst for vengeance. And so what the Psalms are teaching us to do is to just be honest with God, to pray through our emotions, to pray through all of our emotions in the presence of God. You're not expected to stuff your anger and to pretend you're too pious to be angry. You're also not supposed to take revenge. Or to gloat over your enemy's demise whenever you're angry. Instead, you're to take your anger to God, to take your raw feelings and to commit them to Him. You're not always going to feel like rejoicing. I think that's okay. You come in here on a Sunday morning, you may not feel like rejoicing and singing all the time, especially when you've been wronged or you see injustice carried out. So these imprecatory psalms are there for us in those moments, I think. Now let's get to some application. How do we apply an imprecatory psalm? How do they help us to minister? How could they help us to pray? First, a psalm like this, I think, encourages us to take right and wrong very seriously. We tend to take right and wrong very seriously when it personally affects us 
And this psalm helps us to remember that we do live in a moral universe. We like to think that sometimes everything is relative, but that's only when somebody doesn't offend you. We all become absolutists whenever it affects us, and all of a sudden we're like, okay, that is right, that is wrong. So this psalm is helping us to remember that we live in a world where there is wrong, and we should take it seriously. And so the motivation, notice this, behind these imprecatory psalms is not simply personal. Really what we should be striving for as we think about this and being honest with God about is zeal for God's righteousness. It's really about zeal for God's honor and for God's reputation. That's the heart of this. These things don't give us permission to play God and say, strike down that person, that person, that person, and that person. They're meant to teach us to thirst for and to love God's justice and to see that his name is revered. It's about him more than really it's about us. A psalm like this encourages us to be risky with our words at times. The Bible gives us kind of risky language sometimes. It's risky because if you talk this way all the time, like you see in the imprecatory psalms, it's a problem. You're going to go crazy. People aren't going to take you seriously. It's risky because if you talk like that, you become full of yourselves. You become vindictive and bitter. But at times, language like this is sometimes necessary because it conveys truth, the truth of what is really going on inside of you and around you. The imprecatory psalms, they like almost startle us with their feelings of desperation. And so sometimes our prayer lives need that kind of desperation and raw honesty. It's a cry for God, help me, like a child crying out to their parents. Psalms like this give voice to what otherwise might be unspeakable pain. They're, they issue from a position of weakness, not of strength, saying, God, let me loom over my enemies, but rather they're intended to recognize God as the sole source of deliverance and judgment. Also, a psalm like this helps us to better minister, I think, to others who are hurting, or they should. We can sometimes be, I think, insensitive when dealing with people who are going through profound grief. It's not that grief gives a person a free pass to have bad theology or to thumb their nose at God, but these sort of blood-curdling cries of desperation from the imprecatory psalms are in the Bible for a reason. And when someone is dealing with grief, our first response should not automatically be, you shouldn't say that, you shouldn't feel that way. Why? Because genuine community should always be our goal, and it's a product of giving others space to safely process their pain in this way and to minister alongside them and the imprecatory psalms, I think, help us to find language to do that, to enter in and empathize. A psalm like this also encourages us, I think, to know that we can pray like this when we have been profoundly wronged. Now, at the same time, we must absolutely check our own hearts, our own motives, and not be blind to our own sin. One of the things that dawned on me as I was studying for this message is Psalm 139, which has been my favorite psalm for, I don't know, 30 years? I love Psalm 139. I love it. It's so positive. It just speaks about, again, our relationship with God and how he's omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent and all of these things. He's with us. And yet there's a phrase there near the end of Psalm 139 that's always baffled me because it's saying, God, would you take these bloodthirsty people who are around me and just do away with them? It's a, it's a weird thing. And then it goes back to all of this positive stuff in Psalm 139. It's, it's, but the end of Psalm 139, right after 
He's like, away from me, you bloodthirsty people. I wish that God would repay you. The moment he finishes that, he says, search me, O God. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's not just them, 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 but it's also, God, help me. That's the right approach in all of this. That's why it's the risky prayer. We're not to seek revenge ourselves, but we're also to look inward. That we're to leave room for God's wrath, but also recognize that we too fall short of God's glory. We're to hope for repentance from the other person while also recognizing we too need to repent. As strange as it seems, I would offer to you that a psalm like this also encourages us to land on hope. Hope that God will not let one single wrong or one single injustice against you or against this world ever go unpunished. It encourages us to know that injustice that you're facing, maybe even right now, the pain that you're living in, maybe right now, the torment that you're experiencing in the midst of right now is not the last word. If you're a Christian, you believe that God will make right that which is wrong, whether now or in the future, that he judges the wicked, he brings salvation to his children. In the end, no one gets away with anything. No one. So each one of these imprecatory psalms is meant to point us forward to that day, whenever that day is. A psalm, I think, like this also helps us to learn to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. As Christians, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And as Christians, we are to long for that. We're to long to see God's rule and reign and kingdom over every area where it is currently not operating. And we yearn for God's will, his perfect will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We're not to pray according to our own kingdom agendas or in order to get people out of our way. We're to pray for God's kingdom, to rule over every other kingdom and rule of this world for his glory, not for ours. That's what the imprecatory Psalms are teaching us to do. Every time you're saying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's a bit of an imprecatory prayer. And lastly, a psalm like this ought to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. Whenever we're prone to pray, God, these people, or God, this person should have to pay for what they did, it's precisely what Jesus did. He paid for what our enemies have done. And he paid for us and what we've done as well. We should never forget that we too have been and once were enemies of God. Ephesians 2, enemies of God, dead in our sins and our trespasses, deserving of God's fierce wrath to be unleashed on us. And Jesus received on the cross what you and I and everyone else had coming to us throughout human history. It was absorbed in Jesus. It was poured out on him. All of the injustice of the world, all of the injustice done to you and to me, poured out on Jesus as well as all of our sin. It's not just enough to believe this intellectually. It's not just enough to believe it mentally and to go, oh, sure, I agree with that. It's, you have to put your full hope and trust in that. That's where salvation is. It's in a relationship with God that comes by saying, I'm either going to try to earn God's approval and work through all of these other painful emotions, or I'm going to trust fully in what Jesus has done and let him sort out all of that stuff. All I know is I need a Savior, and Jesus became that savior you put your trust either here or you put it here 
And just mentally thinking about that isn't going to get you any closer to that point. You need to make a decision. You're going to trust in your own righteousness. You're going to trust in the righteousness of the one who took our unrighteousness upon himself. So praying the imprecatory Psalms is a call for us, I think, today to cling all the more to the cross of Jesus for everything that you and I deserve. It's not a call to arms. The imprecatory Psalms is a call to faith. It's a call to lift up our voices, not our swords, not our guns, not our weapons, as we pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done here on the earth. Let's pray. Father, we're stunned by language like this and are just... I know I'm still wrestling with it. I would imagine um, in the days to come there will be some of us that will continue to wrestle with it. We don't have all the answers. What we do know is that your word is good and true and right and that you are a real god who wants your children to call out to you in our time of distress and to entrust what our enemies have done against us and entrust that to you the anger that we feel maybe even the vengeance god may our hearts in those moments not grow hard may we grow soft in recognizing our weakness and our helplessness before you father i ask that you would indeed right wrongs i pray for anyone here today who is enduring harsh treatment mis mistreatment injustice and their enemy is just looming over them i pray god for relief and mercy and for a turning of the hearts of those who are opposed to you may your kingdom come and may your will be done in our lives and in each of these circumstances this is about you may you be glorified your kingdom come, your will be done, your glory, we pray. All these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And what a powerful word that it's a call to faith, not a call to arms. So uh, let's respond to that as we sing to and for and about our living hope. Would you stand with us as we sing? <laughs> Such 
as one of our elders, Al, comes up to close us today. Just a couple of quick announcements. As a reminder, of course, 11 o'clock next week, we'll be meeting at Seabright Beach. You got to come and help me raise the average age <laughs> because I will definitely be weighing down the senior side of that. So come and enjoy the beach with us all next week. Uh, a reminder that uh, Steve would love to have your questions on a very challenging and a very important aspect of scripture. So check in with bridges.info and ask your questions. Let's put them to the test. Uh, a reminder, uh, of course, that uh, our church would encourage all of us to continue to be faithful in giving. You may give in the boxes in the back as you leave, and you certainly can give online at bridges.info, and we remind you to do that. We're looking forward to ending our fiscal year at the end of August in a strong position. So as you're able to give an extra gift, we would love that. Let me pray and thank God for this wonderful gathering today. Lord God, we thank you for our church. We thank you for Steve and the depth of his understanding and, and his, the Holy Spirit leading him to guide us into the truth of Scripture. We thank you for that. We thank you for the music, for, for Nate's leadership in that, and we thank you for uh, your part in our lives. We commit ourselves this week to being deeper more motivated disciples of yours. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>